Um, man, uh, again, so much going on. Be praying. Just a couple things before we get into our message. I know you've had, we've had more than a couple things already this morning, but can we be praying for Hazel Tremblay School, that community in Port Coquitlam, that literally the whole school uh, burned to the ground yesterday, and uh, it leaves uh, quite a gap in that neighborhood. Um, I don't know that schools have contingency plans for when these kind of things happen, and so be praying for Hazel Tremblay School. I believe that's what it's called. Um, secondly, uh, intro to small groups, uh, October 25th, it's five weeks. Uh, it's, if you haven't got into a life group yet and you'd like to, this is like a taster, and it's just five weeks commitment, and that's starting a uh, week after next on Wednesday night. They're going to be do the practicing the way material Sabbath practice that we've been doing in a lot of our life groups this fall. So talk to Pastor Bill after the service, or sign up online, you can do that as well. You saw Caleb in the pictures this morning in the baptism. Some of you know Caleb. He was the guy uh, who was speaking the scripture at the end of, the end of that. Wanted to just let you know real quickly, Caleb got his first pastoral job uh, and he starts on Wednesday over in Sanichton, British Columbia. So it kind of feels like we've been sort of playing with the empty nest routine for a while here, in and out of it a little bit. Now it feels a little bit more, at least, permanent for Caleb. So if you see us weeping and gnashing our teeth, this is kind of why. Um, for those who are new with us, we're in this series called The Gospel According to Matthew, and this morning we're looking at Jesus teaching about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Uh, when I became a pastor, um, Angel and I participated in a young marriage group for a while where people we mentored, kind of mentored and encouraged each other in our marriages. And then when I became a pastor, the first thing Angel and I did was we started this little group of newly married or engaged couples, and it started with just a couple couples in us, and uh, we got together once a month to talk about marriage, and it was one of the best things we've ever been a part of, and we did it for years and years and years. Um, and we'd see them, these couples, in the earliest days of their relationship, and uh, it was just amazing how positive they were about marriage. I mean, we'd ask them to encourage each other, like turn to your spouse and say something encouraging. We'd go around the room, and this one guy, we'd, I'd say, say one thing, and this guy would say 10 things about his wife. They'd been married like six months. And the last thing he'd say is, honey, you're so hot. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I used to say things to Angel like years and years ago. And then a couple of years into their relationship, we'd see this kind of shift happen in each of these couples. It was like clockwork where they kind of shifted gears into the everyday reality of marriage. It's like the couple who are married for 50 years. They were asked what the secret of their long marriage was. The husband responds, twice a week we go out for dinner. She goes Tuesday, I go Friday. <laughs> when we're young, uh, we sometimes have romanticized visions of marriage, but the reality of marriage is often quite different. Pastor Timothy Keller said this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. While marriage is many things, it is anything but sentimental. Marriage is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats, and exhausting victories. Marriage is glorious but hard, and it is. There's more work in making a marriage work than we ever anticipate. Like what the farmer said, 
Operating a marriage works like operating a farm. You have to start over every morning. <laughs> I, I know many of us would inherently recognize this truth that marriage can be wonderful and it can be difficult. There are many reasons why a good marriage is good and there are many reasons why a bad marriage is difficult. Throughout the centuries, there have been husbands and wives because of difficult marriages who've looked with great longing for a way out the door of their marriage. So this morning, as I said, we'll look at Jesus' teachings in Matthew where he addresses marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Matthew 5, 31 to 32 offers a few brief words, and then Matthew 19, 1 to 9, Jesus offers an extended teaching on the same subject. I'm going to read those words in just a moment. Feel free to turn there with me if you'd like to. But first, I'd like to make a few comments. I want to say this, all of us have been personally affected by marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so we can't have a, a kind of theoretical discussion about these subjects. It's deeply personal. Your story, your experiences, your pain is involved. Some of you lost a spouse to divorce and, and subsequently maybe lost children or lost friends. Maybe you even lost your church family. I have friends and families, uh, members who've gone through divorce, and some, I would say, divorced recklessly, and some divorced with great reluctance. And some have remarried, and, and others have stayed single. Some have experienced deep healing, and others still carry deep, deep woundedness. I, I grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s, where, where it was the birth of the sitcom, it seemed, and uh, TV shows like The Brady Bunch and Cosby Show and Family Ties, and even if there was all kinds of conflict and turmoil that happened in that episode, by the end of the episode, it would be all worked out. Everything would be forgiven. Everything was restored. Unfortunately, life is not like that. It's not real life. And so this morning, I want us to consider Jesus' words and know ahead of time again, as Jesus' words often are, they will be challenging. As we'll see, Jesus' words are no less radical as when he spoke them in the first century context. So please turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5 and then over to Matthew 31. Or Matthew 31, there is no Matthew 31. Matthew 19, that's uh, where we're following up after. Matthew 5, 31, it has been said, Jesus said this, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Then Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Lord Jesus, as you spoke then, would you speak now? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, As we think about marriage, uh, divorce, and remarriage, I want to frame this around three questions. First, what issues were Jesus addressing? Was Jesus addressing? Secondly, how did Jesus address the issue? And third, what issues do we face when it comes to marriage, divorce, and remarriage? First, what issues were Jesus, was he addressing here? Does the fact that he was living in the first century make any difference in that first century Israel context to what he taught? Absolutely it does. Jesus grew up in a particular time, in a particular culture. Um, he, he grew up with people who had very specific ideas, dreams, thinking. Uh, Israel's history and culture would have been very familiar to Jesus. This was just the air he breathed. Uh, he would have known Israel's history with God. And actually, Jesus took on flesh and, and blood so that he could enter into Israel's story, and I would say the human story, as an insider, not an outsider. So it shouldn't come as a surprise when Jesus began to teach. He didn't offer these kind of abstract ethical principles. He addressed the specific values and questions and and ideas and behaviors he saw around them. And I want to say this. Jesus didn't say all there is to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He was responding to particular things. Later on in 1 Corinthians 7, we'll see that The Apostle Paul does the same thing. He responds to particular issues that were relevant in the context of the early church. So what issue was Jesus addressing? Let me elaborate on the context. Um, Jesus grew up in the shadow of two great Jewish rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. And rabbis Hillel and Shammai were both alive when when Jesus was born, but they kind of represented two opposing schools of thought. Hillel was theologically liberal, and Shammai was theologically conservative. And dynamic teachers always draw followers, and this was true of Hillel and Shammai. Their their followers loved to kind of demonstrate their rightness over the wrongness of their counterparts. And so when religious leaders tested Jesus with theological questions, this is kind of the backstory that's going on. Often their question was, who's side are you on? Do you favor Hillel's interpretation or Shammai's interpretation? Actually, when you think about it, not much has changed. In our church world, people continue to align themselves with dynamic teachers, all the while claiming that, that their teacher of preference has the, the, the right, best, or only interpretation of Scripture. You know, some prefer Tim Keller, while others, you know, Bill, Bill uh, Johnson. Some swear by John Mark Comer. I wonder who. And others, Joel Olstein. One of the many areas where Hillel and Shammai differed was on this subject of divorce and remarriage. Shammai taught that the only permissible grounds for divorce was adultery. And Hillel taught that divorce could be pursued for any number of reasons, including trivial things such as a wife burning her husband's supper. Shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, a third great rabbi came along. His name was Akiba. And he taught divorce was permissible if a man found a woman who was more attractive than his current wife. Yeah, I know that represents some of our culture today. We've seen that. But listen to the question presented to Jesus in Matthew 19.3. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So they're asking Jesus to take sides on this, this grand debate, to take their side, Hillel's side, can we divorce our wives for any and every reason? Now it's important to, to understand that Jesus' teaching was sparked by this kind of pervasive issue in his culture. Divorces were common. Divorces were much easier to achieve and inexpensive in his day. There was no alimony, no child support. I don't know quite that there was lawyers like there are today. Uh, women certainly, and I, I think in both these passages we have to read them in light of the fact of, of women's treatment in that culture. Women were much more vulnerable. In a culture where divorce was taking place for any and every reason, Jesus addressed the question of when divorce was permitted by God. That's the issue. So how does he do it? How does he address the issue? First, he corrects their misinterpretation. Look at Matthew 5, 31 to 32. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you. And you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus would say these things, it has been said, but I tell you. Up until this point, as he uses these words, he goes on to quote an Old Testament scripture. He actually doesn't do that here. Instead, he quotes the common misinterpretation of an Old Testament scripture, Deuteronomy 24.1, which reads, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. This verse is describing a divorce that has already taken place, and the following verses describe how to further prevent this dishonoring of the divorced wife. Yes, Jesus says, Moses did, God through Moses permitted divorce, but this was a concession because of your stubbornness. Divorce was never commanded by God, and it certainly was never commended by God. Secondly, Jesus lifted up the sanctity of marriage. In Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6, I love how there's scripture being read in the, the sanctuary by somebody's phone. I, you press the wrong button on a Bible app, and it starts reading at you. It's really great. He lifts up just the sacredness of marriage in Matthew 19. He says in verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. As one preacher friend of mine once said, he says, where we, where we often start is where we'll finish. The Pharisees' starting point was divorce. On, on what grounds does God permit divorce? Jesus rejects their starting point and offers a different one. He offers God's design for marriage. The first two chapters of Genesis outline his intention. God created humanity, both male and female. And together, male and female bear God's image. And the first time Adam saw Eve, he said, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, we were made for, for one another. I, I'm an egalitarian. I believe in the, the equality of men and women, but uh, there's a complementary side of this. There, they're like, we fit, we belong together. And in marriage, the, the two become one, and it's, it's clear from Jesus' words, he didn't see this as a temporary arrangement. It's also clear that from Jesus' words, he understood marriage not as a, a social convention, not as a cultural ritual or tradition, but as something that has been given to us by God. 
Divorce is the opposite of God's intention. It makes temporary what God intends to make permanent and attempts to dismantle what God has brought together. Divorce is doing what, as what uh, commentator R.T. France said, it's like tearing apart a single body. And that's why divorce is so painful. Finally, uh, Jesus narrowly defined permissible divorce and remarriage. Matthew 5.32 says, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, it's from the Greek word pornea that we get the English words sexual immorality. And pornea is a catch-all phrase for any number of things, for premarital sex, extramarital sex, etc. And Jesus points to sexual immorality as the only permissible grounds for divorce. The question is why? Like, why, is, why does that stand out as the thing? I think we probably inherently know, but let me explain from John Stockhouse, a well-known Canadian theologian and scholar. The second chapter, he says this, he says, the second chapter of the Bible uses a pretty obvious metaphor for the first marriage. The two become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. Sex, that is, marries one person to another. Most cultures around the world recognize this fact, for fact it is. No matter how elaborate their wedding rituals, no matter the power of the vows they make and the pronouncements made over them, the couple isn't truly married until they have sex. Sex joins. In, in the biblical way of thinking, engaging in a one flesh relationship with someone who is not your spouse destroys the original marriage covenant. The, the new one flesh relationship takes its place, and for this reason, divorce was, for, was permissible. But to, to divorce one's spouse apart from sexual immorality put them in a position of becoming an adulterer. And since such a divorce was not legitimate, the original marriage, though, legally dissolved, remained valid in God's eyes. Just before I get to the final question this morning, allow me to summarize Jesus' teaching. Jesus is against divorce because he is for marriage. Marriage was his idea. He dreamt it up. I love talking about marriage at a wedding, about this the beauty of, of God bringing together um, the needs that get met in that relationship. But you know, for Jesus, it's actually one of the, his favorite metaphors for his love for the church, which is why marriage is actually this inseparable kind of bond, sacred, permanent, covenantal. As I said, Jesus talks about the essence of marriage being a man and a woman becoming one. By the way, there are only three relationships in Scripture that take more than one becoming one. It's the Trinity, marriage, and then the church, the body of Christ. And Paul says, this is a mystery, and it is. But this means that the Christian definition of marriage is different than our culture's definition of marriage, and not just because it defines it as between a man and a woman. In, in our culture, we tend to view marriage not as one fleshness, but as one lifeness. We view it as a really profound commitment to share our lives together, but this is different than becoming one together in the presence of and with the help of God himself. That's what makes marriage so sacred, is that we become, the two truly become one. Let me say this. God dislikes divorce for all the same reasons we do. 
any relationship that starts off with, I promise to love you with all my heart for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and ends with, I'm taking the kids, but you can keep the house. (laughs) Misses the mark. (laughs) All divorce grieves God's heart. And I would say, as my friend once said, he says, not necessarily in the sense of the rightness or the wrongness of the divorce, but because a divorce pronounces dead something God designed to bring life and joy and blessing. Okay, so final question. What issues do we face when it comes to marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Uh, Solomon once wrote, find a good spouse, you find a good life, and even more, the favor of God. Um, A good marriage can be very good. A difficult marriage can be very hard. As I said earlier, earlier, where we start will often determine where we finish. John Stott, a British theologian and pastor, once said, he said, whenever somebody asks me to speak about divorce, I have now for some years steadfastly refused to do so. I have the rule never to speak with anyone about divorce until I've spoken with them about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. It seems to me it's not by accident where Matthew in his writing of the account of Jesus' life, places Jesus' teaching on divorce. Right after chapter 18 of Matthew, which we looked at last week and back in May, that is all about broken relationships being made whole, about reconciliation, about having hard conversations, about offering forgiveness to those who hurt us. And I want to say this, I've seen marriages that have been on the brink where Even adultery has taken place, but through God's help, with a lot of hard, hard work and hard conversations and these practices of Jesus that we see back in Matthew 18, I've seen over time those relationships sometimes go on to experience great healing and hope and even thrive together. I've seen that. Maybe you have too. Scholar Scott McKnight says this. He says, there is no greater love than the love that holds on where there seems nothing left to hold on to. In principle, God is for reconciliation and against divorce, but in practice, God permits divorce because broken, sinful people are bound to relate to one another in broken, sinful ways. Among those who seek to follow Jesus and the Scriptures, there there seems to be three basic positions on divorce and remarriage. One, the Bible permits divorce but never remarriage. Number two, the Bible permits divorce and remarriage in the case of sexual immorality or desertion. I'll explain that in a moment. Or the Bible gives permission uh, to divorce and remarry for justifiable reasons. From uh, my own experience, from my understanding as a pastor and my interpretation of Scripture, if I were to align myself with one of these positions, just throw them back up there, Michael, would you do that last one? I would say it would be the third. (laughs) that the Bible gives permission to divorce and remarry for justifiable reasons. Let me tell you why. Jesus taught that the only grounds for divorce is sexual infidelity on the part of one of the spouses. But in the early church, the Apostle Paul expanded the possible circle of divorce. Was Paul being disobedient to Jesus' commands? I don't think so. Jesus, again, did not say all there was to say about divorce and remarriage. He didn't address the issues Paul faced in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul addresses a specific issue. Some individuals were becoming followers of Jesus, but their spouses did not like it, 
and to the point of deserting their spouse because of their newfound faith. In these situations, Paul and the church had to seek the mind of Christ as under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they decided in that instance that the spouse was free to remarry. So what about in our day and in our time? What would God say when one spouse abuses the other physically or sexually or emotionally? What would God say about addictions that have so overrun a marriage that desertion is kind of an everyday reality even if the spouse hasn't physically left? Don't those things also destroy the one flesh union? To put it another way, if I were to assault my wife or my kids and... But, and yet never commit adultery, does my wife need to stay in the marriage or, and, and, or, or divorce me and never remarry? Is that what the Scripture teaches? I don't think so. The marriage covenant finds foundation in God's covenant with us. He is with us and he is for us and unto us. That is, he's actively working to make us to be like his son, Jesus. <laughs> marriage is the commitment to be with your spouse, for your spouse, for the purpose of of Jesus being formed in your spouse. And when one spouse turns against the other or is unfaithful to the other, as Scott McKnight suggests, grounds for divorce may be present because the covenant is being destroyed. So there are justifiable reasons, grounds for divorce, but I want to suggest this. They are fewer than our culture tells us. We live in a culture, not unlike Jesus, where divorce is sought for any and every reason. Uh, a recent study on divorce that I heard about in Canada suggests that 80% of marriage breakups are kind of like based on irreconcilable differences, or we've grown apart, or I'm no longer happy. I, I don't think according to Jesus, those are grounds for divorce. I would suggest those are grounds for getting help for reinvesting in your marriage, for, for putting the work in, for having hard conversation after hard conversation after hard conversation, for learning to practice things like reconciliation and forgiveness. Uh, I, I remember another study from years ago that uh, studied people who were on the brink of divorce and decided to stay together and not get divorced, and five years later, they reported being so much so happy that they didn't that actually time, there was opportunity for them to actually go through the process of healing. Pastor Kevin uh, was telling me this week of this Christian leader who was talking at a conference just a while back, and someone commended him for his recent 25-year celebration of marriage. And in a moment of vulnerability, this Christian leader said, you know, in the last three years or so, there have been some okay merit moments in our marriage but mostly our marriage has been incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, he went on to say, we continue on in marriage out of faithfulness to the vows we made to one another and out of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So how do we know whether there are permissible grounds for divorce? I think we do kind of what the early church did. You know, we, we look to the scriptures. We prayerfully discern as a Christian community, a leadership community, I think about it this way, um, the covenant we make is most often done quite publicly. We do it before God and witnesses. That's when we actually get married, and if we're thinking about dissolving our marriage, I think it's actually not a, 
we maybe should not think of it as much of a, a private matter as we do and include others to have them give their voice and, and uh, speak into it. Other leaders, Christian leaders, can be a help in those moments. Could say so much more on this topic, but we won't do so this morning. Marriage and divorce and remarriage, again, as a friend said, is better talked about in dialogue than in monologue. And I want to say this. God is for marriage. But God is not against divorced people. God is for marriage. He is not against divorced people. He loves them as, as, as much as he loves single people and married people. We're all so loved by him. Being divorced, I want to say this, does not place you outside of the circle of God's blessing. I like how one pastor put it. He said, as followers of Jesus, we need, both, we need to hold both mercy and righteousness in tension. To be so merciful that divorce is permitted for any and every reason overlooks the sacred, permanent, God-given quality of the marriage covenant. But to draw the line so sharply that abusive marital relationships are condoned makes the opposite error. As I conclude today, if you are married here today, I would encourage you to maybe do a couple things. One would be invest in your marriage. like Make investments in your marriage. I once counseled a couple, and uh, they live in the business world, and uh, that one conversation where I talked in terms of investments and deposits and withdrawals actually seemed to radically reshape their marriage. They, they just realized, we got to like, actually put time and money into this thing, and they began doing that, and remarkable to see that marriage flourish. Um, so it, make investments, go on dates, <laughs> do what you need to do. My wife and I leave for a holiday in Europe tomorrow, and largely it's a marriage retreat. So we're going to just, you know, we've been in a season where we've had lots Lots going on, and so we're really looking forward to just the two of us being away. Portugal, by the way, that's where we're actually going. So, but it's a it's kind of a honeymoon. We were going to go in twenty. People keep asking why Portugal in it because we were going to go in twenty twenty. I actually could answer the question back in twenty twenty. I couldn't tell you now because twenty twenty so far ago. But we're doing the trip that we planned back then. Second thing, wouldn't it be wonderful if you've been married for a period of time five, ten, fifteen, twenty five years to take those vows that you made back then and Renew your vows to one another. In a sense, say, I still mean today what I said way back then. And, and maybe if you're living together as a couple, you could consider making those vows for the very first time. Those vows are kind of like teeth in a relationship. They can hold us together, then they strengthen a relationship. And renewing vows can, can renew a marriage. Another point of application is to people who found themselves on the other side of this text and their marriage is blown apart. Maybe they've remarried. Maybe you're in the pain or in the middle of it right now. You know what I'd like to say to you? I, I think God would want to say this to you. Anyone can finish well. That's the wonderful thing about God. Any, anyone can, can finish well. You can start from where you are today. You might not do well in the middle, but the amazing thing about God is he can allow you to come back and finish well. This morning, as we were praying in the pre-service prayer today, somebody uh, remembered the story and was bringing up the story of the woman at the well. And, and you got to remember, do you remember the woman at the well? It's like the longest conversation Jesus had with anyone. What was significant about her? She was divorced five times. 
And she encountered a, a relationship with Jesus, an encounter with Jesus that transformed her, and she became the hope bringer for the whole neighborhood, the whole community. What a great, great story. She encountered the, the grace of Jesus, and we, if there's anywhere that we need the grace of Jesus is in our relating to one another and in our relationships, and in the closest relationships sometimes will be tested the most. Finally, if you find yourself in a difficult marriage, difficult but not unsafe, with God's help, there's a way through. Your marriage is worth working on. Your marriage is worth holding on to. And if you're in a troubled marriage, please come talk to us. Sorry, I'm leaving town, so come talk to one of our other pastors. <laughs> They'd love to help you. I'd love to help you, but I'm not going to FaceTime from Portugal. Can we pray this morning? I'm going to invite the team up. We'll, we'll sing a short verse or two so we can conclude. Jesus, uh, this morning we've been talking about, I, I just appreciate, Lord, that you um, talk about issues that really matter to us and are really significant in our lives. And you understand, Lord, our great need. Um, just know that each of us are coming with our own pain, our own past, our own challenge maybe in this. I, I want to pray you'd meet us in those spaces today. Would you grant us your grace? I pray, uh, Lord, for those who um, are in a challenging marriage today and are considering divorce because it seems like there's no other option. I pray, Lord, would you lead them and guide them? Help us to be a support to them, Father, we pray. Might they know that they're not alone in this struggle? And uh, I pray, Father, that Hillside Church would be a welcoming place for all people, uh, whatever their perspectives on marriage might be. Lord, I pray that we might be able to um, walk alongside those who are hurting and those who are broken. Father, for those who are in good marriages, would you continue to uh, protect those, those relationships and help them to um, carry on and walk forward and, and do so in your grace? Think of our single people who maybe felt like this message wasn't for them, and next Sunday we go on to the very next verses that talk about singleness. And I pray, Lord, we might be a church that just uh, affirms and welcomes single people and and sometimes it's a calling, and, and uh, sometimes we can be single for a long time or a short time, but I pray, Lord, uh, lead us as we consider that question next Sunday. With all these things, Lord, thank you for your amazing grace, the fact that you uh, do not reject broken people. <laughs> you pursue us, you speak truth to us, and you offer us life and hope and healing and restoration. Make it be true in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.